0: Father, this morning we are, uh, just want to express our thanks to you that we can gather uh, another Sunday here uh, to open your scriptures and learn from you. And Lord, I always want to make sure we acknowledge that, Lord, when we uh, preach, when we teach, when, we, uh, when someone gets up at a, at a pulpit and opens your word, uh, that, Lord, the, the purpose of this is to hear from you. And so, Lord, I pray that as we study the text this morning, that your spirit would help us to understand what's in your word. I pray you would help me to speak accurately to what your word says. And, and Lord, that we would all just sit under your teaching this morning. And, Lord, I pray that specifically as we study your character as displayed to us in the book of Jonah this morning, I pray that you would reveal your glory and your majesty to us here this morning as we read your word. I pray that you would give us a vision of who you are, a kind of vision, Lord, that will utterly change everything in our lives and draw us into worship. We love you, Lord. We're grateful for this time, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, So if you lived around here in northern Virginia back in 2011, you probably remember the earthquake that hit that year. Now, it wasn't a big earthquake, little to no damage around here, but if you live around here, earthquakes don't happen. So it was jarring to most of us. Uh, at the time, I was working as the college pastor at McLean Bible Church, and so uh, when the earthquake hit, I was sitting in my office over there and you know, felt my desk start to rumble and thought maybe someone was working on the building or running down the hall or something, but then I looked over, my window looked over the parking lot and I saw the light pulse swaying, and I thought, okay, that's, that's unusual. So I, I went outside of my office And the first thing that I saw as I walked out of my office was our graphic designer, Brad Wolf, uh, running out of his office and screaming at the top of his lungs, Earthquake! And running to the exits. Now, I've never experienced an earthquake before. This is my first and only earthquake experience, so I didn't know what the appropriate response was, so I just did what Brad did. (laughs) Started screaming and running to the exits right after Brad, and that's... That's what everyone on our floor did. It was kind of, Nick was there. I mean, it was kind of a chaotic run to the exit. Now, in all of the hysteria uh, of that minor earthquake, um, I have two regrets. The first regret is that, you know, my wife was also working for McLean Bible Church at the time, and she had a desk down the hallway from me. And that was something that I forgot as I joined in the hysteria. <laughs> running outside of the building instead of making sure she was safe. And she reminded me of that when we got outside. (laughs) And the second thing that I regret is in the midst of all of that, when we all got outside and the earthquake had stopped, um, I realized it dawned on me, we all ran to the top floor of the parking garage. All right, so yes, McLean Bible Church, yes, has a parking garage, and, you know, the, we worked on the third floor of the building. The second floor of the building had the exit to the top of their two-story parking garage. And we all ran to the top of that thing because that's where we always parked. So it was kind of second nature if we're going to run outside. So I realized, well, we ran on top of a structure that's built into the ground that is literally shaking under us. wasn't really a smart move. Um, now, I'm sure many of you have had much bigger earthquake experiences if you've lived in different areas than that 2011 earthquake. But when you feel the earth move underneath your feet, it's an eerie experience. Uh, the, the foundation of the earth that we stand on, the, the foundation that we build our buildings into and anchor them in is shaking, and there's nothing that's going to stop it. It's going to do what it's going to do. Uh, There's nothing like an earthquake to make you feel small and powerless and mortal, right? I mean, you can't tame an earthquake, you can't negotiate with it, you really can't prevent it. It's an eerie feeling. And as we conclude this series in the book of Jonah that we've been in now, I think this is part seven in the book of Jonah. What I want to do in this is I want to take one last look through the story of the book of Jonah, and I want us to look at what what do we learn about God in this book? What do we learn about God's character, about God's attributes? Because there are truths about God in the story of Jonah that when one truly understands them, uh, when one's heart actually grasps them, It's like an earthquake experience. You see how big and how strong and mighty God really is. His glory will shake the foundations of your very life. Everything you've built your life upon will be shaken. Uh, Maybe some of the things you've always believed will come crumbling down. It will literally reorient the way that you see yourself, the way that you see other people, and the priorities that you have In life, When one encounters the glory of God for the first time, it's an earthquake that shakes everything. A great example of this is in Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah the prophet has a vision of the glory of God, and he records in verses 1 to 5 his response. If you look at this, I'm going to read verses 1 to 5. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I, this is Isaiah, saw the Lord... Seated on a high and lofty throne, throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim, these glorious angels, were standing above him. They each had six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another, "'Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies.'" His glory fills the whole earth. The foundations of the doorways shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. So, this is what Isaiah sees. It's it's hard to even put in words that we can understand, right? So, it's just this incredible experience. And here's his response in verse five Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Because I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips, and because my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of armies. When Isaiah says, Woe is me, I am ruined, what he's saying there is, I'm silenced. There's nothing that I can bring. When I look at myself and compare to the glory of God, it's it's nothing. There's nothing I can say. I have no argument to bring to God. I can't debate him. I can't negotiate with him. He says, I'm ruined. And in the book of Jonah, we see a similar response from the king of Nineveh in chapter 3. If you remember the story of Jonah, we've been studying it a lot together God had called Jonah to go preach to Nineveh. This is what God told Jonah to do. Chapter one, verse two, God says to Jonah, get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because their evil has come up before me. So God had noticed their evil and God was planning to judge this great city of Nineveh for their evil and for their violence. And we know that Jonah at first didn't obey. Okay, so he had a few encounters with God and some storms and a big fish, and he, but he eventually he started to obey God and he went to Nineveh to preach God's judgment against them. And as we mentioned last week, Nineveh was a great city in the Assyrian Empire, but it was an evil, violent, savage type of place. Uh, they were terrorists in every sense of the word. And so when Jonah arrives at the city, This is his message. Chapter three, verse four. Jonah set out on the first day of his walk in the city and proclaimed, in 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. That was his sermon. And by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the glory and the holiness of God was made clear to these people. God's righteousness, His power, His authority, and His justice, not just God's ability, but His right and His obligation to judge Nineveh for their evil and violence was made evident to them. It was an earthquake when God's glory came. A powerful and feared city was made small and powerless. Didn't matter how deep you sunk your buildings into that foundation, it was shaking. Everything shook, their worldview shook, their pride was drained. They could not stand up to almighty God. And so this was the response of the king of Nineveh to this earthquake. Jonah chapter three, verse six. When word reached the king of Nineveh, He got up from his throne, took off his royal robe, put on sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Just think about that, that scene, this mighty majestic king of a great city that everyone feared. He hears the word of God, it pierces his soul, and he gets up off of his throne. And he takes off his royal clothes and he puts on sackcloth and ashes, a, a symbol of human frailty. I came from dust and to dust I will return. How can I stand up against God? I mean, it was an Isaiah 6 moment. Woe is me, I am ruined when I look at the glory of God. I mean, have you had an experience like Isaiah did in Isaiah six, or like the king of Nineveh did in Jonah three. An experience where you encounter the glory and the grandeur of God, and when you see his righteousness, when you see his holiness and his goodness, you see yourself different. You see the people around you different. You see your own sin and how you have fallen short of God's glory. And when you see his power and his sovereignty, you see your own mortality and your own powerlessness when I compare myself to God. And here's the thing, if if anyone, if you really want to fully grasp the enormity of the grace of God that is given to us in and through Jesus. If, if anyone wants the gospel to utterly change their life, they need to have this kind of encounter with the glory of God and the grandeur of God. The kind of encounter with God that forces you off the throne of your life, where that's the only response. And so, Here's what I wanna do this morning as we look through the book of Jonah one last time is I wanna show you some truths about God, some attributes that God has that we see in the book of Jonah. And when we truly see these for what they are and we see God for who he is, it brings us to our knees in worship and surrender to God. And so here's what I have. I have three truths for us this morning that I want us to look upon from the book of Jonah, truths about God, and then some thoughts on how we should respond. So here's truth number one. Truth number one is we learn about God's justice in the book of Jonah. God's justice. Justice is a buzzword nowadays in, in politics and, and definitely in the church as well. Uh, a, here's a basic definition of justice that's helpful for me. Uh, justice is getting what one deserves. That's justice. If you work a job and you agree to a wage and you do not receive that wage, that's unjust. You did not get what you deserved. If you commit a crime and don't receive the proper punishment for that crime, that's unjust. You did not get what you deserved. If the justice system treats certain people one way, when they commit a crime, and other people differently when they commit the same crime. That's unjust. Certain people are getting what they deserve while others are not getting what they deserve. If someone commits a crime against you and they are not caught or held accountable for it, that's unjust. They're not getting what they deserve. If certain punishments are too severe for a crime, that's unjust. They're not getting what they truly deserve. So, so we get it. Justice this idea of getting what I deserve. And so God created us to care about justice because he cares about justice. We're made in the image of God, and God is a God of justice. So it's built into our souls to get upset when we see injustice. And so we see God's Justice against the Ninevites in the book of Jonah. Look at chapter one, verse two again. We already read this, but this is when God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because their evil has come up before me. In Jonah chapter three, verse eight, the king, after getting off of his throne, gives a divine decree, I'm sorry, not divine, a, a decree to the entire city Calling everyone in the city to repent. And look at what the king says in in chapter 3, verse 8. He says, Furthermore, both people and animals must be covered with sackcloth, and everyone must call out earnestly to God. Each must turn from his evil ways and from his wrongdoing. And a better translation of this might be, and to turn from his violence. This word violence in the, in the Hebrew here carries the meaning of violence and ruthlessness against others. Remember, Nineveh was known for being ruthless and unjust when it comes to how they terrorized other people. And then finally, in, in Jonah chapter three, verse 10, this is where we see God's mercy on Nineveh in response to their repentance. But look at what God says. He says, uh, God saw their actions, that they had turned from their evil ways, so God relented from the disaster he had threatened them with, and he did not do it. And so here's what we know: we know the, the Ninevites were a violent, evil people, and what we see here is that God saw this violence, he, he He saw what they were doing, and because He's a just God, He was planning on judging them for it, giving them what they deserve. In other words, before Nineveh repented, the just thing for God to do would have been to judge them through destruction. That's what God was gonna do. And this is what Jonah preached to the Ninevites. Chapter three, verse four. In 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. Jonah preached the justice of God by preaching the wrath of God. On Nineveh. And deep down in the soul of the Ninevites, they knew they were an unjust people. And look at me, their worst nightmare, the earthquake that was gonna shake the Ninevites, was the revelation of a just God, someone who could hold them accountable for their actions. The Bible speaks of a God who rightfully judges the unrighteous, a a God who is perfectly just and gives everyone what they deserve for their sin against him and their sin against others. Uh, Romans chapter 1 verse 18 says, For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And what is it that everyone who has sinned deserves? How is God's wrath actually played out? Romans chapter six, verse 23, for the wages, again, think of what do I deserve? What have I earned? The wages of sin is death. The just wage for our sin is death. I mean, this means that if you have ever sinned, and you have, and I have, then we deserve God's wrath in the same way that Nineveh deserved God's wrath. That's what would be just. God created us to live our lives worshiping him and loving one another. And in our sinfulness, we have rejected him and we don't love one another always. And so that means we deserve spending eternity apart from him. Why would we deserve eternity with God if we have rejected God? I mean, this is why in Isaiah 6, when one of God's own prophets had a vision of the glory of God, he was confronted with who God is and his holiness and his righteousness. He goes, woe is me, for I am ruined. Why? Because I'm a man of unclean lips. He sees God's holiness, his righteousness, and his justice, and he cowers. The king of Nineveh sees God's holiness and his righteousness and his justice, and he cowers. God is a God of justice, and we deserve his judgment. That truth right there will shake the foundation of your life. But listen... If God was a just God, if he was really a, a God of justice, but he did not have the ability and the authority to carry out justice, then that means God would be a useless God, right? Over-promise, under-deliver. He, he would be a God that calls us to justice, but cannot exercise and bring about justice. Justice. But the second truth that we learn about here about God in the book of Jonah is is this, truth number two, God's authority. God's authority. God has authority over all creation. Kathy just read for us from Psalm 115, verse three, one of my favorite verses. Our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. God does not answer to anyone, and he has the authority and the power to do whatever he wants. There's no one who can question him, and there's no one who can stop him. And God's authority means that he has the ability to, and he will, bring about perfect justice. No one will stop him. We see examples of God's authority all over the book of Jonah, his authority over creation to do whatever he wants. We see God's authority over the weather in both sending and stopping a great storm. We see God's authority over plants and animals in commanding the fish to swallow Jonah, commanding a plant to grow overnight, and commanding a worm to eat the plant. We see God's authority over physics and biology as he allows Jonah to live in the fish for three days and three nights. We see God's authority in not taking no for an answer from Jonah. And we see God's authority as he brings an entire city of 120,000 people to repentance. God has the authority to supernaturally intervene into the natural world to accomplish his purposes. One of the biggest criticisms of the book of Jonah. Well, how could a guy live in a fish? Well, God has the ability and the authority to supernaturally intervene into the natural world to accomplish his purposes. I love the, uh, the story in Matthew 26. Jesus uh, is in the midst of being arrested and to be brought before the Sanhedrin where he would eventually go into the cross. And, and as he was being arrested, One of his disciples drew his sword and cut off the ear of someone who was arresting Jesus. And Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, This, Matthew chapter 26, verses 52 to 53, he says, Put your sword back in its place. Do you think that I cannot call on my Father and he will provide me here and now with more than 12 legions of angels? This is what Jesus is saying. Put put your sword back. Do Do you think that my arrest right now is outside of my control and my authority? This is happening because I want it to happen. I've authorized it to happen. Put your sword back. There's never a time where God is not in control. And when we think about God's justice and His authority and those two things coming together, I think we can have a hard time with that, because it's almost as if they're competing values. When we look at a world that's broken around us. when we see bad things happen to people or to us in the world, we wonder, how can God be just and also have full control and authority and sovereignty? How do those things go together? And if we're honest, we think that God needs to explain himself to us and earn our approval, pass our test of justice, come under our moral authority. But remember, a God who is all about justice but does not have authority, that's a useless God. A a God who has all authority but does not care about justice, well, that would be an abusive God. But our God is both a God of perfect justice who also has all authority over all creation. And when you take the justice of God and you combine it with the authority of God, mix in the compassion of God like we studied last week, then what you get is the third truth that I want us to talk about this morning, and that is this, God's redeeming power. God's redeeming power. A compassionate God who has all authority and who also will bring about perfect justice is a God who has the power to redeem. Think about it. God could use his authority and justice to forever condemn those who sin against him. And for many who don't repent, that that will be their end. On the other side, it it would be impossible for God to overlook sin because that would go against his character. He wouldn't be a God of justice if he overlooked sin. But God shows his true power and his true character in his desire to use his authority and justice to redeem people, to take people like us who at one point were opposed to God and redeem us into children of God. If you look at the story of Jonah, we see how God's justice and his authority came together for the redemption of of many different people. Uh, In chapter 1, Jonah's disobedience and sin uh, led him to be on a ship that were full of, of a bunch of sailors who did not know God. They did not worship God. And in the midst of God using his authority to discipline Jonah through the storm, the sailors on the ship are redeemed. After they saw what God did on that ship, this is what they said. Chapter one, verse 16 says, the men, these sailors were seized by great fear of the Lord. There's that earthquake, that encounter with the glory of God. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. I mean, isn't it amazing in that, in that episode there that God is doing multiple redemptive activities in different people's lives at the same moment? He's disciplining Jonah, but getting him back on track to be in his will and bring him to repentance. He's also doing that so the Ninevites can be redeemed. And at the same time, he's using the disobedience over here to redeem the sailors. He's just doing it all at the same time. That's God's redeeming power. And when we don't understand why God is doing what he's doing, when we're looking and going, God, why did you allow this to happen? Or what are you doing right now? We don't realize that God is actually in the middle of a million different redemptive things at the same time. In chapter 2, Jonah finds redemption through repenting of his sin and turning to God. God didn't give up on Jonah, and God didn't overlook Jonah's sin. No, God brought him to a place of repentance. He redeems Jonah and sent him to what he had been called to do. And also in chapter 3, as we read earlier, the whole city of Nineveh repents of their evil and violence. And I want you to see this again, the king's decree in Jonah chapter 3. When the king gets off his throne, he issues this decree to the whole city. Look at what he says. This is verses 7 and 9, chapter 3. Then he, the king of Nineveh, issued a decree in Nineveh. By order of the king and his nobles, no person or animal herd or flock, is to taste anything at all. They must not eat or drink water. Furthermore, both people and animals must be covered with sackcloth and everyone must call out earnestly to God. Each must turn from his evil ways and his wrongdoing. Who knows? God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. See, God used his authority and his justice to bring Nineveh to repentance. And verse nine is very clear that the king of Nineveh did not believe that their repentance obligated God to relent from his judgment. He knew what they deserved. And he knew that his only hope was that this just God was also merciful. And the people of Nineveh were redeemed. And you might be wondering how then, if if everything you're saying is true about justice, how is redemption just if people are not getting what they deserve? Uh, sure, we see a pattern of repentance where people are humbly recognizing their sin and understanding that they deserve the judgment of God. But how is repentance a reason for God not to justly punish people for their sin as Romans says we deserve? How is redemption just? And I think it's, it's right here that, that makes God's redeeming power so glorious. Because God made a way to redeem us from our sin without compromising his justice through his son, Jesus. This is where Jesus comes in. As I said earlier, there is not one sin that will go unpunished. Every sin will be specifically judged in all of history. Perfect justice will be complete one day, yet God is able to be merciful and gracious to those who repent of their sin and trust in Jesus because Jesus himself absorbed the wrath and the judgment of God for our sin upon himself. Let Let me show you, Romans 3, we've been in Romans a bit. Paul explains this to us in Romans 3, verses 23 to 25. Let's walk through this word by word. Paul says this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what we've been talking about. When we encounter God's glory, we're, we're ruined. But all, we're still talking about all, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified. Here's our word, justified by his grace as a gift. So when you think of justified, think of if you've been justified, that means that it's as if you did not commit the sin. When God looks at you, he doesn't see the sin. It's been, you've been exonerated, all right? So, and are justified by his grace as a gift. I didn't do this, I did not deserve this. God is the one who has gifted this to me. Look at this. Through the redemption, right? There's our word that is in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the one who accomplished this. Verse 25 whom God put forward. So God has put Jesus forward, this was God's plan, by His um, put forward as a propitiation by his blood. So propitiation, big word, essentially means to appease. So when we use the word propitiation, we mean that God's wrath was appeased or satisfied on our behalf. So God puts forward Jesus Christ to be a propitiation, to appease his wrath by his blood on the cross. To be received, so how does this get credited to me? By faith. Verse 25. To be received by faith. Here, what's faith? Uh, God, I repent and I confess the fact that I'm a sinner who deserves your justice, but I have faith that your justice will be executed upon Jesus and not me. So I trust you for that. I I trust in Jesus that I will be justified of my sin because your wrath went to him. It didn't didn't go to me. So at the cross of Jesus Christ, look at this, the mercy of God and the justice of God meet. They come together together because our sin is being justly dealt with, but God mercifully deals with it upon his son Jesus instead of us. All that is required on our part to receive this gift is faith. And faith means being humbled by the glory and the grandeur of God, confessing that true justice would mean that my sin should be properly dealt with and judged by God that I deserve that punishment, that wrath, confessing that and relying wholly on the grace and mercy of God to redeem me through the cross of Jesus Christ. This is what we see in the book of Jonah. We see God's perfect justice. He's holy and righteous. Apart from him, we are not and we have no defense against him. We have no argument we can bring without Jesus. And we see God's ultimate authority. No one can thwart his good plans and his just plans. But we see his justice and his authority come together in God's redeeming power, his ability to justly deal with our sins and make us into his children forever. and listen to this, when we understand the severity and the goodness of God's wrath against our sin, let me say that again. When we understand the severity and the goodness, the righteousness of God's wrath against our sin, my sin, me, no one else, not pointing fingers, me, and then we see the cross of Jesus Christ, that's an earthquake experience. That's when one understands the grace and the love of God like they never have before. And there's only one appropriate response when that occurs. It's the same thing that the king of Nineveh did. We get off the throne of our lives, repent of our sin, and throw ourselves unto the mercy of God my only hope. And getting off the throne of your life, what that means is you realize it's it's this moment where you realize, look, my entire life before I encountered the glory of God, my life has always been about me. Everything's been about me. I've sat on the throne and everything serves me, right? My schedule serves me, my career serves me, my bank account serves me, my relationships, my marriage, my kids. Everything is about me and my expectations and what makes me comfortable and what makes me happy. But now I see that God, you're the glorious one, I'm not. And that the world was not meant to revolve around me. The world breaks when humanity wants to be on the throne. No, God, you designed this place where all of creation is to your praise and to your glory. It revolves around you. And so instead of me living the rest of my life with me on the throne, I'm going to repent of my sin, trust in Jesus, get off the throne, and I want to live the rest of my life with you at the center following you, living according to your word, believing that your word, and when we live your word out, that is to your glory and it is for my joy. That that's when the good life starts. Not when I secure the throne, but when I get off of it. That's the only response. The earthquake response that will shake the foundations of your life when you see who God is really is. And so here's what I want us to do this morning as we, as we close. Usually I, I pray to, to close our sermons, but I wanna do something a little differently uh, this morning. I just want to give all of us just kind of a, a silent moment with God. Just a time where we can quiet our souls just for a minute or two. And here's what I want you to pray in that moment. Just pray, God, I want to see your glory. I, I want to I have that experience like Isaiah did in Isaiah 6. Or I just want to have that moment where I see who you are and it just reorients everything. So just, just pray, God, I, I want to see your glory. I want it to shake me off the throne of my life. Show me what that looks like. Show me what that looks like. And I'll just say this too, if, if you're here and you don't know Christ, maybe, maybe this is a time where you could pray and ask God, God, show me your glory. If you're there, if you exist, show me your glory. Show me the mercy of the cross. I, I want to believe in that. And if that's you this morning, I, I encourage you to ask God to reveal his glory to you. So let's do that. Let's take a minute. Let's just silently pray to God. Ask him to reveal himself to us. And then we're gonna end our time celebrating the glory of God together through song. Take a minute.